Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. 2021 was quite a year, so we thought as we get ready to let it go, we'd take one final look at some of our favorite segments that we aired this year on The Buzz. The COVID-19 pandemic continued to dominate the news in 2021, as did the politics and policies surrounding it. In March, the president signed the American Rescue Plan, which, among other things, allocated more than $30 billion for tribal communities. The U.S. Department of Interior oversees many of the federal programs that work with tribal nations. In April, we sat down with Interior Secretary Deb Holland, the first Native American, to lead a cabinet-level department. She told us the American Rescue Plan is the largest single investment the U.S. has ever made in Indian country. $900 million for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and that includes direct aid payments to tribal governments and funding to address concerns related to housing and potable water. COVID hits, people are supposed to wash their hands. So many households in Indian country don't have running water. Or if they have water, uh, it's polluted. You know, water is a human right. It's the year 2021. So I'm so grateful to President Biden for including the funding for Indian tribes for housing and, and water. You mentioned water, and that may be something that some of our listeners are surprised to hear, that in a lot of tribal lands, there's not potable water coming into the house as it is uh, in so many other places, and this is a good start, it sounds like, uh, to fixing that problem. Absolutely. I remember way back when uh, my grandmother didn't get uh, running water to her home until the mid-70s, and it's 2021, and still a lot of Indian tribes don't have running water. So we're going to do our best to make sure that we're working with tribes so that they can get this water to the folks who need it. On this infrastructure, and we have seen around the country during the pandemic a lack of Internet access. Will this help get folks who are living on tribal lands uh, better access to the Internet, which has become now so important? You may have heard about the American Jobs Plan, and uh, broadband Internet service is part of that plan. There are some tribal governments that are still using dial-up. These are actual governmental systems that don't have broadband. They're using dial-up. A storm comes, it sets the service out of whack, and they're unable to do business. So with broadband Internet service, if every tribe had that already, uh, they would have been able to take opportunities for telehealth during this terrible pandemic. If we had telehealth opportunities for rural communities and tribal communities, they would have been able to attend their doctor visits as usual, and we'd be in a much better place. When the federal government passed the CARES Act at the beginning of the pandemic, you were still a member of the House. What do you think was learned between the CARES Act and the American Rescue Plan, especially with regards to tribal areas? When we passed the CARES Act, we fought for $20 billion for tribes. We got eight. The need is great, and that's something I think we've learned to make sure that tribes have the funding they need to make sure their communities are healthy, too. And, and 
if anything, we've seen tribes have really launched into ensuring that they're getting vaccinations to folks in their communities. They've done uh, an impressive and admirable job of that. In looking at the website for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which comes under the Department of the Interior, it said with regards to the American Rescue Plan that people from the Bureau will be reaching out to tribal governmental leaders all across the country. How are those meetings going? And the fact that it got put on the website sounds like this is maybe a new idea. Well, it shouldn't be a new idea. We should always be doing tribal consultation with Indian tribes across the country. We did tribal consultation for the American Rescue Plan. It should have always been happening. President Biden has made that a priority. I saw he actually sent out, he being President Biden, sent out a memo to all department heads that said anything that uh, deals with tribes, you need to talk to the tribes no matter what the department is. And that seems like a bit of a change. It's an all-of-agency approach, and we're so happy. The Bureau of Indian Affairs falls under the Department of the Interior. We absolutely are committed to making sure that we keep those relationships alive. But of course, all of the federal government, you know, tribes don't live in a box. They, they have economic development, they have transportation issues, they have health care, education, all of those things. When you were nominated and eventually confirmed, representation became a big part of the discussion around all of that, with many people saying your appointment marks a change in the wind. Do you agree with that? I think it does. President Biden has the most diverse cabinet in the history of our country. And if there's anything that I've learned about representation, it truly does matter. You need all different perspectives coming together at the same table to discuss how we move forward, how we include every voice in our country to make sure that people are represented properly. With representation in mind and the directive for all the agency heads to talk to tribes when an issue involves tribes, do you see discussions, realistic discussions happening on things like removing parts of the wall that President Trump built, for example, here in Arizona goes across sacred land to the Thana Atham Nation? Uh, do you see those types of discussions happening with this new attention being given to tribal nations? Well, uh, I can't say about what specific issues have been raised with tribes in the various departments across the federal government, but I can tell you that tribal voices are extremely important to the whole of government, to all the agencies, and uh, we're committed to ensuring that President Biden's promise to tribes is carried out, and I'm sure that tribes are going to raise the issues that are important to them, and they absolutely should, and they should see movement on those issues. That was U.S. Interior Secretary Deb Holland, who spoke with us in April. We spent much of the summer looking at the border. As part of that series, we spent time with Customs and Border Protection as they dealt with one of the deadliest summers for migrants. Customs and Border Protection uses an array of technology and people to track and catch people crossing the desert and help the ones in trouble. One of those tools is a fleet of helicopters. 
Good morning, DM Tower. Troy 113 is with you. Uh, Customs throat for an A Mountain departure. Troy 113, this one, Tower. Good morning. Departure VS on risk, wind 140 at 5. On the go, 113. Doug Murray is a veteran pilot with Customs and Border Protection's Air and Marine Operations. This morning, we took off in an A-Star helicopter, call sign Troy 113, from the agency's facility at Tucson's Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. We headed south. The goal? Be available to help agents tracking people through the desert. And it didn't take long for the first call to come in. Good morning. Uh, we have a couple calls. I'll give you the Nevada one, which has been working for a little bit, and uh, see if we can help out as a group of 15. A record number of people have been apprehended trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border during the current fiscal year. Murray says his experience this year backs that up. We're really seeing just a flood of humanity cross that border, and that flood of humanity is completely ill-prepared for. Border Patrol agents were searching an area in the mountains north of Nogales for two individuals who agents in a fixed-wing plane had spotted using infrared cameras. As we approach, Murray talks with agents on the ground, sometimes referred to as PA, to gather information and see how he can help. Agents made contact with about two, and then there's another one a mile north, and there's possibly two like a half mile east, so they're kind of spread out around those numbers you were given. Okay, I'm, I'm real close. Do you guys hear me or see me yet? Yeah, you flew just south of us. 113, can I give you cords to where the fixed wing possibly had two exact cords? Yeah, send it. 31 degrees, 26.32. That's 26.32. Negative 111 degrees, 12.37. 12.37. Okay, I'm right over that spot. And they were, he had two in there? Yeah, it was real thick, and he thought he had two heat signatures in IR. Yeah, that's right up on top of this ridge up here, where, uh, right off my nose if you're, uh, if you're looking at the helicopter. Due to a near-record monsoon, the normally rocky terrain is covered in lush grass and trees, which makes it hard to see anyone. So Murray drops the helicopter low enough to blow the trees and grass. Right here under me is I'm right on top of the coordinates right now where that where that where that he claims to have had it. So I'll start kicking the brush here. The images on the news of large groups of people waiting for border patrol agents after crossing the border is not who pilots like Murray are looking for. You know they're going to be young. Uh, seemingly fit males and they're going to be all wearing camouflage and they will resist border patrol agents. They're going to run from border patrol agents, they're going to fight and uh, their, their goal is to get away. The monsoon fed lushness of the landscape makes it difficult to see the agents on the ground, let alone anyone in camouflage who's trying to evade them. After about 30 minutes, Murray breaks off his part of the search without finding anyone. Agents will work it longer than I'll be able to work it because, you know, they're, they're, they're day shift and they're out all day, you know, so this might be what they work the entire day. Um, at some point they'll go, okay, well, we'll wait until they cross another point north where they'll be detected. Most of the helicopter missions last four to five hours with pilots moving from call to call. The helicopter is the real-time eyes in the sky for ground agents but they're part of a larger team that are dispatched from the Arizona Air Coordination Center, known as the A2C2. 
In that late August show, we went on to explore the A2C2 and talk with Border Patrol officials and migrants about crossing the Arizona desert. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we're looking back at some of our favorite stories from 2021. 2021 marked the first time college athletes could get paid for the use of their name, image, and likeness. Athletes, especially those playing football, quickly racked up advertising deals. In October, we explored the issue with coaches across the region, including Pima Community College Athletic Director Jim Monaco. We started our conversation on the topic of whether or not community college athletes are making decisions about their next steps based on possible name, image, and likeness deals. You know, I, I do get calls from the community and, and some young athletes that are in high school. You know, can you contact this coach? And from what I'm hearing, that is the case. And it's really difficult to fathom for an old person. All right. I, it really is. It, it's hard for me to fathom this. And I, I don't understand or I really don't see where this is going to be beneficial because truly, you know, B. John Robinson, let's let's use him. Right. Tremendous young man. He is a wonderful human being and an amazing football player. He's already getting those contracts. Now, what about those five big guys blocking for him? Right. They're not going to get those contracts because. Who knows at Texas who Billy Bob Smith is? He's the right guard, but they know who number five is running behind them. So I really, in the, in the future, I, I can see it as a real detriment to college athletics. But when I see kids, and they are kids, right? They're 19, and, and, and they're getting contracts for hundreds of thousands of dollars. It, it just, where the heck does the amateurism come in? Are you now going to have to work with your coaches as this gets bigger and bigger to begin counseling these students or set up a program so that when they get those kinds of offers, when they're eligible? I know if I were 17 or 20 or even in my 50s and someone handed me a check for six figures or maybe even seven figures, it could burn a hole in my pocket pretty quickly. You know, you're going to have to counsel these kids. You know, we... We're old enough and been involved in athletics enough that we've seen those stories of even the Heisman Trophy winners who all of a sudden get thrust into the limelight and all this money. And the next thing you know, they're broke and they're not in the league anymore and they're no good. And then they're arrested or they're on drugs. I can see where counseling is going to be incredibly important. And, and let's be honest, it's brand new. So how many of my coaches would even except we all understand what it is? How would they know how to process it and proceed with it and give direction to a young person? Because we've never been faced with it. This is brand new. And it just, I don't know, it, I think, you know, that old thing, right? The rich get richer. I can't imagine schools like Alabama and Oklahoma and Texas and, and things really being so far ahead of so many other schools. I mean, who's going to Akron? Wonderful, wonderful university, amazing athletics. Come on, it's Akron, right? Hey, I, 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 I wouldn't turn down a job there, but these kids go, it's Akron. Uh, but I can go to Michigan, which is 110,000 people in the big house every week, and my likeness is going to be everywhere. If you're a running back or a wide receiver or a quarterback or a DB. 
the kids you have, some of them are, are gifted athletes who academically needed to come to Pima to get ready to go to a, a larger institution or a four-year institution. Might not be larger. Pima is pretty big uh, student body-wise. Or maybe they're an athlete that's on the edge physically as opposed to academically that that needs a couple of years under your coaches. Who are the kids who are coming to be student athletes at Pima? Our young people, male and female, like are incredible young people. You know, we always talk about leaders in the community. You have that understanding. You, you said it, you hit it on right on the head. If you're a tremendous football player, why was I able to get you? You know, if you're 6'6", 325, and you're really good, it means you needed some help in the classroom. And, you know, and then you have some of our, especially some of our local kids, because we wouldn't go out of state and bring somebody in like that. But our local kids that might need a little bit. And now you're talking about a young person that's not going to get a lot of help scholarship wise, and they're still going to have to go to school and practice every single day. And they do it. And, and I got no knock on the University of Arizona, of course. But the kids that go there, they're already pretty polished stones. You know, their, their academics are in place and their athletics are in place or both are in place. We get them. They're a little rougher, but they come out diamonds because of the work they've done. You know, not, not just what our coaching staff has done and what our counselors at the college have done and our instructors, but the grind they have to put in. I mean, my goodness, you know, if you're a business Boy, I'd ask, were you a JC player? Because you had to grind to get that four-year degree. This is not just another level, little level up from high school. You have had some great athletes come through there. And maybe it's not the sports. Maybe it's not football. You guys aren't doing football anymore. But your women's basketball team a couple of years ago, before UA you know, got all the attention, there was you guys. You bet. And let me say this. Jeff Cotton, who played on my 2015 team, still with the Jacksonville Jaguars. So, you know, that's, that. you're right. Our kids got, and you know, I know, I always call them kids, but heck, I'm 60. Almost everybody's a kid now. But, you know, the, these young athletes, these student athletes, they, they do some incredible things. And, and that's the key. So many folks think, well, it's Pima. You know, I, I get phone calls all the time. You know, what sports do you have? I'd like to come try out. And I'm like, okay, let, you know, and, and I'm trying, you try to do it with the best grace you can, but you're like, you know, that this isn't how this works here. You know, most of our coaches recruit their athletes because truly this year, 10 of 15 went and competed for a national championship. 13 competed for the region champion. I mean, if this was Stanford, you'd have it all over the city, right? 13. So we're trying because that's what you want to build. You want to build that great program. You want to build a program that that has expectations of excellence because, you know, with those kids and like we talked before with football, with those kids, when I came in, we made a conscious effort. We're going to be a 3.0 department and we were 2.96 for 337 kids. So I sit back and I mean, my hat's off. These coaches, they're getting a study hall. Our study hall is bursting at the seams. So that's the key. You know, it, it, you're not just another athlete. It's so small that you really do get a chance to move on. And so being recruited and going to Pima College, you're already in the top 
of every youngster that ever strapped it on or took a bat or a ball or a glove because that's what gets to go to college. It's so minuscule to go to the pros. They've got to make sure that they can read a textbook and do math problems, which I cannot do now with this math. And, you know, I mean, so it's, it's just, it's, it's really touch and go with our kids because they, as much as you don't want to shoot them down, there has to be a level of realism. Hey, do the best you can here and leave nothing undone. So that way you have no excuses. You did everything you could. And then if you get to go to another school, doesn't matter if it's Michigan or Boston College, or if it's an NAIA school, who cares? More college, more athletics. That was Pima Community College Athletic Director Jim Monaco. This summer's monsoon was one for the record books. Everyone celebrated the rain, but for some people there was one burning question. Why were there so many bugs? For that answer, we turn to entomologist Dr. Katie Prudick. The short answer is we had a fabulous monsoon. So there's a lot of bugs out because there's a lot of green things to eat. As you've probably noticed in your backyard, there's lots of weeds, um, also known as food to many insects. Um, And so that's where they're coming from is there's just a lot of plants out there that, that we're happy to see the rain. And when plants are happy, insects are happy. One of the things I noticed a lot of were flies, which is something we don't see a whole lot of in Tucson. They don't eat plants. Why, why are they out and about? Things are decomposing, right? So flies eat dead material, and with water comes more decomposition, and those are fly snacks. I like dead. that, fly snacks. <laughs> Maggot snacks. <laughs> the other thing that people have been asking about, uh, I'm sure everybody has asked their neighbors, their friends, you, about these big yellow caterpillars, again, that we don't normally get. Are they tied to the monsoon or is there some other cycle um, like cicadas? And what do they become? Yeah, those are um, manduka probably, uh, the sphinx moths. You probably know them if you have tomato or pepper plants. Okay, so where are they coming from? Again, it's, it's, they are most insects, you know, in the Sonoran Desert uh, come out in one of two seasons. One is the spring season with the winter rains and the other is the summer season. We have the joy of two springs in this part of the world is the way I look at it. And so they come from, you know, just a lot of plant material out there. Uh, Some of them feed on datura, some of them feed on tomatoes or peppers or their relatives. And so there's just, with the rains this year came more snacks. And so they're here and they're doing really well. And they're, um, just able to to make a lot of babies and chew on your plants. Does that mean that as the rains sadly end that all of these insects are going to go away? Well, you won't see them. They are still there. Insects hibernate like bears. I know this doesn't really, people don't think about this, but in the winter, they're hibernating until the spring rays come. And they could hibernate um, in egg form, in caterpillar form, uh, in pupa form, if it's a holometabolous insect, meaning it has complete development, like a beetle, a fly, a butterfly, or an ant or bee. Um, those bugs, that's how they do it. Uh, or they can overwinter as an adult. When it comes to all of the insects and bugs that we're seeing, if they're here because of the wet weather, does this mean if things dry out for the winter or next year's monsoon? is not so good as this year's that we'll see fewer of them? The population size of insects, so how many you see and who you see, is is always dependent on how much precip we get. And those 
that rain comes in two different times, the winter rains and the summer rains. And so some insects, if we get a good winter rain, we might have, you know, a good spring crop of, of insects because there's, there's good plants. And uh, when you have good plants, you have good bugs and then bugs that eat bugs. Um, and then when we get to fall, you know, you need that great summer rains. So what we expect to see moving forward with uh, a warming climate is sort of periods of really wet where we get lots of plants and, and insects and then periods where we don't and we don't see as many. And that sort of seems to be tracking with what we've seen in recent times too over the last five years. Is there anything that has surprised you as an entomologist as a result of the monsoon? Yes, I would say who has done really well has surprised me. So I'm a butterfly specialist. Um, and so we've seen a lot of what we call pierids, your white and sulfur butterflies, particularly the sulfurs. Like I think everybody I know has been like, what is this yellow butterfly? And there's been a lot of them. Um, but there hasn't been as many swallowtail butterflies, for example, like uh, the giant, the Western giant swallowtail, which as a caterpillar feeds on your citrus trees, it looks, looks like a little piece of bird dung. Um, they're not doing as well. The, I haven't seen as many um, pipeline swallowtails, another swallowtail. Uh, you know, a few of the brush-footed butterflies, your nymphalids seem to be doing really well, like your queens or your um, uh, emperor butterflies. I've seen a lot of. Those are the ones that feed on hackberry as caterpillars. So you'll see the males sitting there um, perched on a hackberry, ready to attack anyone who, who walks by. Um, they're doing really well, but uh, other ones just aren't. They aren't there as much. Is some of that, for example, not seeing the swallowtails, or they may be just being crowded out by the ones like the sulfurs that we're just seeing so many of? Yeah, so they don't feed on the same things as caterpillars. That's usually your your resource limiting thing is is caterpillar food. So your leaves and your flowers and your seed pods and roots and whatever part of the plant they're specializing on. Uh, swallowtails feed on a different set of of plants that may or may not be as affected by the rain, the vast amount of rain. Um, and so, or, you know, they may have some other things, some diseases or some parasitoids or predators that are, are, you know, just sort of influencing how many individuals you see. That was entomologist Dr. Katie Prudick chatting with us in October. And that's the buzz for 2021. You can find links to all the shows we highlighted along with all of our episodes at azpm.org and you can subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Ariana Brocious, Emma Gibson, and Megan Myskowski produced this year's shows with help from Vanessa Ontiveros and Samantha Larned. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Happy New Year, and thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.